Dear listeners of the Female Guides Requested Podcast, Happy Wednesday. I'm your host, Tintin, from sunny Las Vegas. Today, I'm presenting you another episode of the Guides Beta series with our guest, Mary Brown. Mary Brown has worked as a guide manager at Alpine Ascent for almost 10 years. A guide manager is often the interface between guide services and their guides, and serves as a bridge between clients and guides. As a guide, I certainly appreciate how a competent and caring guide manager makes my life easier. However, what exactly does a guide manager do? In today's episode, we dive deep into Mary's role in Alpine Ascents to learn about her job description and duties. Since she has been in the industry for almost a decade, I was curious about what major trends Mary had observed. She pointed to climate change and a more diverse clientele as two areas that have impact the way guide services operate. She described how guide services, for example, Alpine Ascent, had responded to the changes. We also spent quite some time talking about the awesome initiative, BIPOC, Guide Development Program, Alpine Ascent piloted in summer 2023. According to Mary, the motivation of the program was to provide climbers of color an on-ramp to professional guiding and help the aspirant guides build their professional network. Mary provided strong reasons to justify the cost to Alpine Ascent. Hopefully, other guide services will follow suit. I hope this episode helped unveil the roadmap to becoming a guide. Now, let's give it a listen. I just had my morning coffee hasn't right kick in. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. How was the skiing? <clears throat> How was skiing yesterday? The skiing was really nice. We just went um, skate skiing in plain Washington. Uh, the snow was a little bit warm. It's been really warm here, but it was really fun. It was good company. Nice. So you live in Northwest, like Seattle or Bellingham or somewhere in between? Yeah, I'm in Seattle. I've okay. been here since 2010. 2010. Yeah, I love so, it here. Well, yeah. I would I would move. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I like Seattle, but I think my dream city to live in would be like Squamish. Okay, would be really great. I can see Squamish. Like, someplace I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you like um, because I live in Seattle, but I move out because I'm mainly a rock climber, and just mm-hmm. hard Las Vegas is like. A little yeah. friendly, more friendly for rock climber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So um, thank you so much for coming to this uh, podcast. So this one is also a little bit different. Uh, it's going to be part of my guides beta series, trying to talk about what other than what is guiding related, but not particularly working as a guide, I think. So do you mind? Um, Introduce yourself a little bit, like what, what's your name? What do you do? Uh, where do you work? Uh, my name is Mary Brown 
and I'm the guide manager at Alpine Ascents International in Seattle, Washington. And can you describe, so guide manager, I think probably most of small, big guide service, they probably have somebody play this role a little bit, but um, is uh, my impression correct that Alpine Ascent is big <laughs> comparatively? Yes, Alpine Ascent is really big. I think it might be the biggest guide company, mountain guiding company in the United States. We have around 90, maybe even more than 90 guides on staff. Not all of them work full time. Some guides only do expeditions or only work in the Alps or um, only do a couple trips a year. But in the sum total, probably over 90. And we have a pretty small administrative team considering how many guides and trips we run. I think there are 10 of us who are full-time administrative staff. So in addition to managing the guides, um, I do a lot of other things as well. Uh, managing the guides, what's, can you elaborate that? What does that mean? Mm. Yeah, so from the very beginning, uh, we do life cycle recruiting at Alpine Ascent. So life cycle, uh, life cycle. Um, it's kind of like a jargony corporate term, but um, I will do the interviews, the references, the onboard. Yeah, so it's kind of all in one person. Uh, sometimes I'll do the interviews with my coworker Jonathan Spitzer, who's an IFMGA guide. Uh, but sometimes it's just me going through the process. So that, um, all of the scheduling of the guide staff um, for all of our trips, um, making sure people, guides have their certifications up to date, have their continuing education up to date for the park and tracking all of that. Um, in addition to scheduling the guides for the trips, I also build the climb schedule for all of our climbs. So like I'll build the big schedule and then I'll put the guides in the schedule. Um, and then a lot of it is also communi communicating with the guides, which I do in a couple different ways to make sure they have all the information they need for their trips, like all of our manuals and risk management and all of that stuff. So I built a website for our guide staff that has all the information they could ever need about any place that they're going. So I do that. Um, I also do a newsletter for the guides that have sort of our latest um, news and new programs and new policies that comes out. It kind of depends. I try and do twice a month, but in the winter when we're less busy, I'll do maybe once a month. I call it the Cascades Chronicle or the Cascades Chronic. It's like kind of funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then pre-trip briefings before the, before all of the climbs. So just making sure people know when the gear check is, any sort of client notes to be aware of, um, if there's any sort of like weather conditions they should be worried about or just all of that kind of stuff. So. Wow. That's a, a pretty wide range. So you start with say the incoming guys, they might send their applications. You you read through them, check their references, um, interview them, um, staff them. And then you look at your calendar for the work uh, yeah. and 
obvious steps, and then you do pre-trip briefing and then post-trip briefing. Probably, is that correct? Oh yes. Uh, for post trip briefing, it kind of depends. For our, we run so many domestic programs that we don't usually do a formal post trip briefing unless something out of the ordinary has happened, um, like an injury or something like that. But for our international expeditions or any of our expeditions, like Denali. Aconcagua, the lead guide will have a post-trip debrief with either myself or Jonathan, the other person in the guide department. So I'm curious, so um, do most of the trip of Alpine is same more um, longer trip, which means say at least some camping in the field? <laughs> oh yeah. All of our trips, we only have a couple of programs where people aren't overnighting in the field. All of our trips, um, most of our trips are overnight camping trips from our three-day summit climbs on Tahoma and Colston, all the way from, all the way to our Everest expeditions, which are, I don't know, over two months long. We run everything in between, but for our day trips where people aren't camping in the field, it's really just our avalanche courses. And we have a, a couple of weekend rock guiding programs that are just single day trips. We don't run very many of those. It's mainly, mainly back, it's mainly backcountry stuff, camping. I see. The reason I ask this is because I work in Red Rock and we do a lot of day trips mm -hmm. and a lot of time we are playing this waiting game because you you don't know too far, sometimes too far ahead of time whether you will get booking. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out which one is more challenging for you. I mean, obviously your work has a challenging part, but I'm trying yeah. to see that like how ahead of time, like how likely a trip will run. So, mm -hmm. um, so then you don't have to juggle like this last minute staffing. That's what I'm trying to get. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, yeah, that's a great insight. Our trips, so we'll typically release our climb schedule for the coming season. Like, for example, we're really busy in the summertime in Washington. It's like the time to climb. So we'll release our summer schedule for booking, it's like to the general public around Labor Day, if not a little bit sooner. So, so you mean Labor Day and then you already said Labor Day, say 2023. So all people would know the calendar for 2024. Yeah. Okay. So like all the dates of our Rainier climbs and Baker climbs and mountaineering courses. Um, for some of our longer expeditions, we'll like Denali, for example, will post our Denali dates around the time the current Denali season is wrapping up. So people have plenty of time to, because Denali is such a big expedition to prepare for it. You know, if they have a favorite guide um, and kind of put all of their ducks in a row, but for our domestic climbs, we'll release them, you know, Labor Day before the summer. And almost all, well, all of our Rainier climbs sell out 
pretty fast. Um, Baker doesn't almost sells out. Um, we'll run, I would say, 95% of the trips that we post on the website. So when I build this climb schedule, I am almost positive that all the trips will run. We don't really do last minute bookings because we're, we are so busy. We just have so much going on that we just don't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, so we schedule all of our guides in advance. And so this is the time of year where I start scheduling guides for the coming summer. So I'll, I'll send out a big availability form to people, um, usually in October, or I'll ask like, how many days do you want to work? What are your blackout dates? So people, if they have like weddings or climbing trips they want to do. Um, so blackout dates, any climb requests, like, oh, I really want to climb Olympus this year, or I really want to do a 13-day course or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, so climb requests. And then other any other notes that they want me to know, like, oh, Mary, it would be, so great if I got to guide a trip this year with my other guide friend or something like that. So I'll take all the information and I'll schedule everyone in advance of the summer. I usually have a first draft of the summer schedule for people to look at around like mid to late March. So I'll send out the schedule from May through sort of mid-July all the guides along with a list of their climbs and they'll come back to me and say oh Mary this looks great or actually can we make this change and then we'll make the change and then we'll yeah, confirm it and so they'll they're all set and then for the second half of the summer I'll usually do that like early April so all of our returning guides should have their schedule more than a month before the summer starts so they can plan other stuff. It's good to have work-life balance. You can't just always be on call. It can yes. be very stressful. Yeah, I think. it's kind of nice to have something already you know that and yeah. you can arrange your personal stuff around it. Well, I, I work for Nose before and they have some similar. They, mm -hmm. um, they basically run longer trips, so it's all on the calendar and then they're assuming yeah. it's gonna go for the mm -hmm. most part. And so I have a few questions. So definitely we send out a schedule and dream sheet. This uh, first question is, do client even can request guides or it just like, sorry, uh, we don't mm. let them have this uh, ability to do that. Yes, clients can 100% request guides. It doesn't always work. I try my best, but sometimes a client will request a guide for, let's say, a climb in June and the guide's on Denali, so they're not available. Or, yeah, but I'll, I'll try. They can request it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but I do try. Yeah, just like for me, it's like if they are on the bigger trip, because Denali trip, they are not gonna be the only client, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so you have to accommodate other yeah. clients too. So when you staff them, other, um, other than their availability and their request, then you're trying to accommodate, what other concerns that you might have, like when you make the decision? Oh, that's a great question. 
Um, so of all of the climbs that we're running, um, we have different, our climbs are of different uh, difficulties to guide. So everything from um, a climb up Mount Baker to something that is much more technical, like a four day climb up the, the West Ridge of Forbidden in the North Cascades, which like is a technical alpine climb. And so we have that range of climbs, everything from like your very like basic glacier climb to a really technical, uh, well, a technical to guide uh, alpine rock climb. And we have our guides at different le leadership levels. So for example, a guide, when a guide first starts at Alpine Ascent, they're a new guide. So they're just assisting programs. And then when they come back for a second year, that is the time when most guides start leading Baker climbs because they have a good basis of the way we run our programs, like a good yeah, basis of just the way we guide our trips. Uh, and then, you know, they'll come back for another year, hopefully, and then they can start leading typically three-day climbs up Rainier. And so as people are... Uh, gain more experience at Alpine Ascents, they're able to guide more advanced trips. So when it comes to scheduling, uh, what I'll typically do is I'll look at all of our guides and sort of uh, split them up into different groups, depending on who can lead what trip. And I'll schedule the lead guides first. That tends to work pretty well because every climb needs a lead guide and they tend to be the hardest to schedule, especially when it comes to more technical programs, because there's uh, fewer guides that are able to guide the North Ridge of Baker as opposed to the Easton on Mount Baker. And those guides who are guiding our more technical programs tend to have uh, more AMGA training or maybe they might be fully certified guides. So I'll start with them first and then I'll kind of work backwards and all of our guiding at Alpine Ascents is team guiding. So like on a three-day climb up Rainier, we'll have four guides and eight clients. Or on Baker, we'll have three guides. And then I'll schedule uh, guides who are more experienced. And then I'll schedule um, our newer or least experienced guides last to make sure the trips have a good mix of um, skill levels and um, yeah, guide, guide experience and training. Um, we try to avoid having a lead guide with, let's say, three new guides because it can be really stressful for them to like be, you know, teaching our new guides the ways of Alpine Ascents while also managing the clients. So we try to have sort of mixed um, guide group guides of mixed abilities on the trips. So it's inside the lead guide other than, well, obviously lead the trip that also have a job for mentoring newer guys yes. okay yeah so in the team you're trying to balance it out so then they will have the capacity to do both yeah yeah and it seems like um so you talk about um maybe there's their own training and their discipline their certification so they're um where are they at to guide different type of trip how technical they can go snow rock and mm -hmm. 
in them um, how many years they work. So if somebody who has a lot of experience from other company, would they still have to go through this, the first year working the Alpine Sun or is it a little bit different? Oh, it's a little bit different. It's pretty common. We're really flexible with our guide staff. We do like our guides to work for other guiding companies, like not direct competitors in Washington, but it's pretty common that our guides will work out in the Tetons for part of the summer and come back or, um, yeah, work in Red Rocks and come back. But when people are moving into Alpine Ascent laterally from a different guide company, which is pretty common, they already have a lot of experience, but maybe not uh, in the same terrain that we're guiding in, uh, we'll usually have them, you know, assist trips at different levels before we have them start leading, just because our logistics are, can be a little bit complicated if you are new to Alpine Ascents, um, just get, making sure people have um, a good basis of how things are running and operating and before we put them out in front. Do you give some people preference according to, I see that if they are, they work um, longer with Alpine Ascent, so they accumulate a higher leadership role. Um, is that how you call it similarity or how, um, what do, how do you define that? Do those people will have higher priority to get the trip they want? Yes. Um... I wouldn't say seniority is 100% everything, but we do like to um, acknowledge guides and their commitment to Alpine Ascent, especially guides who have come back year after year after year and have taken a really strong leadership position in Alpine Ascent um, and have been mentoring our guide staff. So those people will tend to pick our senior guides for our international expeditions, for example, like if we're deciding... Um, who will send to go guide the Mexico volcanoes, for example, or who's going to go down and guide Vincent. We'll look for our senior guide staff for that. Um, and in terms of scheduling in Washington, I will typically uh, reach out to our senior guides, so guides who've been guiding for more than five years, and give them preferential scheduling. I'll like reach out personally and say like, hey, you know, what trips do you want to guide this year? What 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 are you thinking? Sometimes I'll even send them um, a template of the schedule and say like, oh, let me know what you're thinking. And they'll send me a list of what, what they want to work. Hmm. So now I have a little bit more sensitive question here. So um, there's this some myth of, um, say, in the guide world that it seems that the more qualified, the more experienced you are, you think you should get paid more. And then the guy service might just say, well, this trip is not that technical. So why do I want to pay more for a senior guide than just hire maybe like a first or second year newer guy, so to save mm -hmm. cost. So then um, it's uh, because I've seen that in some some places so i'm just wondering how as a guy service what they what are they where the others stand oh that's such a great question the way we do our pay at alpine ascents 
is like I was talking about earlier, we have those guide levels. So we have, you know, a baker lead, a rainier lead, and all leads. So just different levels of guides. And that's how we determine their daily wage. So like a new guide starts at a certain rate. And then when they are starting to lead on baker, they'll have a certain rate all the way up to their senior guide and they're leading our guide trainings. So they'll have a much higher rate. And we'll pay them that higher rate, no matter if they're leading the climb or assisting the climb. It's pretty common that we'll have um, very, very experienced guides um, guiding on just a simple, not a simple, but a more um, straightforward climb of Baker up the Easton, for example. Um, yeah, so th that's the kind of the way we do it. We really, it's really important to us to uh, retain our guide staff because they have so much um, experience and knowledge and it's, yeah, it's just invaluable to have really good guides um, instead of being more cost focused and thinking like, oh, how can we cut corners? I think just having really great guides will just pay dividends in the long run because they'll offer such a, a much better product and we'll have return clients and they're mentoring the new guides. It's just the more experienced guides you have, even if they're more expensive from like a daily rate sample uh, standpoint, it's just, yeah, it's just like where the money should be invested, I think. And what if say, um, well, this probably still happened, like for whatever reason that, well, you schedule this guy and then the trip doesn't run and, uh, then, then this guy will not get compensated or they would somehow still get work elsewhere. Ooh, it depends. It doesn't happen very often, but, um, it kind of depends on what is happening. So let's say we have a private trip. We do run a fair number of private trips um, and the full balance of the climb for the clients is due 120 days prior to the start of the climb, right? And let's say this group decides to cancel a week before, which is not great. Um, we, for, short-term cancellations, we don't offer refunds. Um, it's like all over our materials and people sign up. Um, so we still pay the guides because we have like retained all of that money. And so, yeah, we'll still pay people even if the climb was canceled. Um, if it's a climb where, let's say, we have to cancel it, um, when does this happen? Like for avalanche courses, sometimes they won't run. Usually they do, but sometimes they don't. Uh, then we'll try and look for other work for the guide because we have we don't have any of the money from the clients to pay the guides. So yeah, we'll kind of see if what if we've gotten money from the clients or if we haven't. And if we haven't, then we'll hopefully find work for guides elsewhere, which we're usually able to do since we are so busy. Um, yeah, but if we get the money from the clients, then we'll just pay the guides and they can hopefully have some days off or if some other things open up, then we'll hopefully get them work elsewhere. Um, 
And I also I heard the story from Leah Leah so who was on the show, and、uh, she mentioned that as one time you stab her、uh, as one of the female guy in this intermediate climbing course in Alaska, and she realized that she was working with another woman too. So basically, the team was two female guys, and.、Uh, um, I think the clients, as、uh, the story, if I remember it right, mostly men. I don't know whether there were any women. So it's basically two female guys guiding a bunch of、uh, men, and which obviously, I mean, sh- she was competent, and I bet both of them did a great job. And but she, there was some group dynamic issue during that trip. But then they managed, <clears throat> they managed that. So. Um, she learned a lot, and she got great feedback from the participants. And she was just saying that it was、uh, a little bit surprising because, in overall, a lot of time, say women like, for example, me got staff to, all right. So oh yeah, these are women. So Ting Ting go there, and then、yeah. or these are Asians. Okay, yeah, Ting Ting, you take them.、Um, and obviously, I teach you a lot of all male courses too. It's not like they discriminate. Me, but I'm just trying to see that whether,、uh, say, a gender balance or a diverse team instructor team is also in the back of your mind, or how do you make those choices? Oh, definitely.、Um, we have a lot of female guides on staff at Alpine Ascent, which is awesome,、uh, and so I try. It doesn't always work、um, to get. Uh, to staff、uh, a guide team of、uh, a diverse gender identities, in I, so I try to do that in Washington on our shorter trips. But for our expeditions, I really take much more care to make sure that we do have、um, if we have female climbers on a trip, let's say on a Denali trip,、uh, that we have at least one female guide. Um, so when I'm scheduling for Denali, for example, I'll like look at the client rosters. And I'll like write a note on the schedule. Though this trip has three female climbers, this trip has one or two or zero. And then when I'm staffing, I'll make sure that we have at least one female guide on every trip with female climbers. I think it is, especially for the longer expeditions, so so important、um, to to have the guide staff reflect the makeup of the client team. And I'm wondering whether you would get this comment. Say, in the past, I've been staff、um, a trip, and then other senior, more senior male guys they say, "Hey, Tintin, you only got that position because you're a woman." And back then, that was probably my first year working on the job, so it w- could be true. And、uh, now I'm I'm work for longer times. I don't think the comment will ever stand anymore. But I was wondering whether you would get some of those complaints. You said, "Oh, because you want to diversify the team, but they don't really have enough field days." Say, "Oh,、um, I don't know. I haven't gotten that comment before.、Um, it could be that people are thinking it and just haven't told me." <laughs> but <laughs> I think we try to do a really good job about being equitable with our staffing.、Um, So it hasn't come up, but it is something to think about for sure. Making sure that 
um, even while we're looking to make sure our teams are um, diverse, that we're still operating within our same framework of um, AMGA training, seniority, client feedback, and all of the things that go into how we're choosing to staff our our teams. So you are trying to be, say, still uh, staffing in the objective way in some sort in quote, air quote, fair. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, because it is really hard because since I've worked for Alpha in a sense for so long, um, I mean, it. it's almost, it's impossible to eliminate bias. I mean, there are like some guides who I enjoy more than other guides and it just, it just is the nature of working with people. So when it comes, when I'm staffing for Washington, for example, I'll, when I staff everyone, I'll actually, it takes a long time, but I'll go and count to make sure that people have people who have a similar people from who have a similar level of training have like a similar level of days if they've requested it or I'll like look and see like, Oh, this person making sure people have a variety of trips. I'll actually go and count to make sure it, it all lines up to make sure that I'm not inadvertently staffing guides who I have like a, a close relationship with for more trips. So I like, I really try and keep it above, above board. And talking about that, do you think you have to tread lightly managing, say, your re personal relationship with guides? Oh, I think so. Um, I think it sort of happened naturally as I've gotten older. I mean, I've worked for Alpha in a sense for, it'll be 10 years in May. So when I started, um, I was 28. So I've, um, the guides were much more my, we were like in the same age group. It's like pretty common that guides are starting to guide at Alpine Ascents in their mid to late 20s. Um, so they felt very much like peers. I would go off climbing with them quite often, um, just spending a lot of time with them. Um, but as I've taken on a more of a leadership role at Alpine Ascents, I've also gotten older. So <laughs> I know I'm much older than our incoming guides. And I do have really close relationships with, like, let's say, Lyra, one of our senior guides, who was just, you know, out, we were just out skate skiing yesterday. Um, but with our senior guides, we give them so much um, flexibility with their scheduling, like we're saying, like, hey, pick your schedule. Um, so I, I feel like there's not a conflict of interest in that way. And I think it's just sort of happened naturally like as I've gotten older I am a bit more removed from like the day-to-day -day, not the day-to-day -day, a bit more removed from spending so much time with uh, the guides outside of work say um, let's come back to the diverse instructor team there so how do you say for example you make sure say if they are female participant in Danali and you have a female guy how how well does it receive like from the kind of point of view did they mention to the company say oh I really appreciate that I have a female guy in the team they do it's really nice um for all of our climbs whether it's a three-day climb or a three-week climb we send our clients a post-trip evaluation form so they can talk about like how their guides were how their leadership was how the 
food was. So we just have this evaluation form and we do get really great feedback from our female climbers on trips that have female guides. Like, oh, it was so wonderful to have a female lead guide. It was just, it was such an inspiration. Yeah, it's just, I think they really do appreciate the, that we're able to um, provide a guide team that is reflective of a group of climbers. Great. Um, so then maybe I'll pivot to the program that Alpine Sand is doing for the BIPOC guide training thing. Yeah. Do, do you have an official name for that? Oh, yeah. I've been calling it the BIPOC guide development program. Okay. BIPOC or just the guide development, development program. Either okay. one. Um, so the, let's see, 2023 is the first year, right? The, mm -hmm. the summer. So how did it all start it and what is it about? Oh, great question. Um, it all started, oh, so before, so 2023 was our first summer and I came up with the idea the fall before the first, uh, before the first summer of it. And I think the idea must have been percolating in my mind because once I started writing down what the program would be. I was like, oh, it should be this and it should be this. Like all the ideas were there. Um, I just had to write them all down. But um, we do not have very many, I mean, like many guide services, we do not have a very many uh, guides from under-recognized communities on our guide team. Like it's, the guide teams are, like our guide staff is overwhelmingly white. Um we do have a lot of female guides, but I wouldn't say it's 50, 50, it's probably like 35% female guides, um, maybe 40%. But, uh, yeah, we just don't have very many, uh, guides of color, unfortunately. And that, you know, there are many, 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 many reasons for that. Um, you know, systemic racism, um, access to the outdoors, all sorts of things, but, it's something we are trying to, yeah, we're trying to address, especially as the guided public is getting more diverse, which is awesome. And on our employment page, we say like, we are actively recruiting BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus guides. And we've said that for many years, but we still don't, we get very, very, very few, if any applications from those communities. And clearly just saying that we want applications from diverse guides hasn't resulted in getting more applications or more guides. So um, we had to sort of think about, you know, okay, how do we fix this? Or like, what are steps we can take to uh, diversify our guide staff? So the program is a series of free trainings for guides of color um throughout the summer and at the end of the program they we cover their avalanche level one and avalanche rescue course and offer like career coaching and that kind of stuff um so sort of giving people uh, an on-ramp into professional guiding uh, because i feel like there are a, a, a good amount of programs that are teaching climbers to climb, like people of color to climb, but there aren't as many programs that are bridging recreational climbing to professional guiding. 
So that's what we're, that's kind of the, kind of the, um, the motivation of the program. Uh, and this past year, this past summer was our first year of it. And it was really great. It was a really big success. I'm really happy with how it turned out. We had eight climbers in our first cohort. Um, and at the end of it, uh, two of them will be guiding for Alpine Ascents this coming summer, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I think everyone will be guiding in some capacity after the program. A couple of people were already guiding rock and they have taken the skills and are able to incorporate that, who incorporate the skills they learned um, into their guiding practice now. And some people had never done any guiding and now they'll be doing some rock guiding as well. So yeah, it's been really good. Great. So I, I have a few questions. So I'm curious. So you said that you have put that into your uh, website, say we welcome, say people from underrepresented group that mm -hmm. to send the application in, but it just, it just doesn't happen. And um, I was wondering, um, have you even guessed what that, why that might be? Oh, yeah, I think there's a bunch of different reasons, but I think it can be really, I think the guiding industry can be a little bit intimidating and, <laughs> and opaque to sort of yes. get into. I mean, and a, yeah, because if it's not like becoming a lawyer where you go to law school, I think people... Like talking to people um, who have been interviewing for the cohort this year, I think people have this sense that, oh, you have to be climbing at a super high level to guide. Um, it, I think people think that you need a lot more climbing experience and training and have to be just an amazing alpinist to be a guide. But um, at least at Alpine Ascents, um, it's, the prerequisites are really... I think pretty pretty reasonable for a recreational climber. I think at Alpine Ascents, um, we're looking for usually like five glaciated climbs at a minimum, some outdoor leadership experience, um, the required certifications, of course, and hopefully a little bit of AMGA training, but the AMGA training is not required. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I, I think people are intimidated by guiding, and maybe don't choose to apply. I think um, as a climber of color, it can be harder to find mentorship. And mentorship is like such a big part of like guiding. I guide, I, we have so many guides on staff who were recommended to us by other guides on staff, like people they've worked with before. And yeah, just the gear is expensive. The required trainings are expensive. There's just there's just a lot, I think. Yes, I, I agree. So most people think you have to climb, be this badass climber yeah. in order to, um, but you, you can start at any level because you can always teach mm -hmm. from, at, and the entry point is not that prohibited. Um, and I can, I guess, I guess uh, it is a little intimidating for a guide of color to break into the mold. 
um, let's see, and then the mentorship thing. So for so this program, so this year, so you have eight climbers, mm -hmm. and what? So it's all free for them for the guy training. Are they obligated to work? No, it's all free. They're not obligated to work. Um, we really wanted to make it non-transactional. We didn't want it to be a program where it's like, we gave you this training, now you have to work for us. Um, like, that's not a great scene. So yeah, we gave people, if pe the people who are guiding for us next year, they decided to do that of their own volition because they had a really good experience working with the Alpine Ascent guides during the program this year. And they were like, motivated and psyched to do it um yeah but we, yeah we're just giving people the option and the training um and also I think the connections are a big part of it um getting the people in the program um more connections with working guides and guide companies um and just seeing more of the industry. So they're able to, after the program, decide if guiding is for them and if guiding is for them, how they envision it fitting into the overall architecture of your life. Because some people will guide full time, uh, but I think a lot of people increasingly are guiding part time and then are fitting or doing other things around guiding that sort of complement their guiding and vice versa. Um, I think that can be more sustainable for people in the long run. And in 2023, how many applicant application that you got? Uh, in 2023, we got a lot. We got 44 applications. And out of 44, because you, so does um, Alpine Ascent sponsor the whole program? Or do yes. you have other gear company or whatever? No. Uh, so we work with Edgeworks, which is another, uh, yeah, another climbing company. They own a climbing gyms as well in Seattle. And but they, they also are a guide service, right? They're also a guide service. Yeah. Um, we're not, we don't really guide the same things, although we guess we both guide um, avalanche courses. And so they, for the program, their director of climbing, his name is Kurt Hicks. He's also on the AMJ instructor team. He uh, led a lot of the trainings last year. And they also provided an SBI course for the people in the program uh, and a free gym membership, which is really great. And then the North Base gave everyone hard shell jackets and pants, which is really great. And then Mountain Hardware also helped out with some mid layers. I see. Uh, now, I I just got reminded yesterday uh, when I preached with you, I said I knew two of them, but I actually think I knew three of them. Oh, really? Who also, else? Um, DJ. Oh, DJ is so great. Yeah. So I know Larissa, DJ, and Soph. Gee, mm. <laughs> out, of, <laughs> out of eight of them, I know. At least yeah. three of them. <laughs> uh, great. I, I'm also super proud of them, too. Um, is uh, 2024, right, uh, you also do the same thing again? Yes, yeah, same thing again. Um, a little bit different this year. Um, it'll be a little smaller. We'll have six people in the cohort this year. And 
since this past summer was our pilot program, at the end of it, we had a really big debrief and checked in with all the people in the cohort to hear like what trainings they liked, what worked well, what uh, what are areas of growth for the program, um, and just yeah, I asked them like a ton of questions, and then I made a lot of big changes for this coming summer, which I'm really excited about. Great. So um, can I ask you this question? Because a lot of time when I see um, any um, group that runs this style of thing, maybe teach climbing, they are mostly grassroots group. Mm -hmm. So so they are like a group of climbers of color, a group of yeah. climbers of uh, so LGBT community. And then they figure something out. They might have to pull outside um, people who is not part of the community to help them with the training, but they still. So um, two questions, like you thought about that. Is that because you yourself, your identity is a non-white? I don't know. What, what do you identify yourself? Oh, um, non-white. Um, <laughs> identify as, well, I guess black, but mixed, I think. Like mixed race. And I was just wondering whether that was part of the reason that you proposed the idea and then uh, how, because then how you have to um, convince Alpine Ascent to provide uh, because it's also like training is not cheap. Mm -hmm. So they have staff guides and, and to do all the training and design a course. So, so um, how can they justify the cost? Oh, great question. Yes, this program is definitely inspired because, you know, I'm a climber of color and yeah, just thinking about when I started climbing in Washington, like thinking about the type of program that would have been really helpful for me or like my peers uh, getting their start in climbing and thinking about getting into the outdoor industry. So that's like kind of what I modeled it on. Um, and then to justify it to Alpine Ascents, yes, I had to justify it because it is it is a pretty expensive program and we are paying our guide trainers their normal wages. Um, we're putting like the same care and intention into these programs that we do with the programs with our like you know, programs that we have for our clients. And I did that in a couple ways. Um, a big one is, like I said before, our uh, clientele is becoming more diverse. And I think it is really, really important that our guide staff is reflective of that. Um, and being able to see different leadership styles and people's different identities and how that shows up in their guiding, I think you make for a much more inclusive, welcoming and rich environment with like the idea sharing. Um, something I'm really excited about for this coming year is of the people we have interviewed for the program. We have people who are fluent in a lot of different languages. Like we have a fluent Mandarin speaker, people who are fluent in Spanish. Um, and we have a couple of guides on staff right now who are fluent in, well, we have people who are fluent in Nepali, Spanish, but I don't think we have any Mandarin speakers. Um, and we are getting increasingly more clients from uh, mainland China. Um, 
yeah, so just like being able to offer that to people as well is so key. Um, okay, so diverse clients is one one uh, avenue. Also, um, with our land use managers, like the National Park and the National Forest, um, every year we are applying, well, not every year, but at different intervals, we are applying for, you know, concessions to guide on Rainier or Denali or the National Forest. And I think um, from a federal level, uh, people are increasingly looking um, at companies and seeing like what they do in terms of their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I think I think Rainier hasn't required it yet, but I think it was a for our Denali National Park um, concession, they like specifically asked what we were doing regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion in our guide training. So like we're starting to see that more from uh, our land use managers. So we, it's important for us to show that we are working towards that. Um, and I think when clients are choosing where to climb, people are increasingly looking to like, how, like, what does the company stand for? Um, is this a company I want to support? And I think as we are trying to make a difference in the guiding community, I think that will also be of interest to people as well. And that, that's how I, that's how I tried to pitch it this past year. Awesome. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious. So you work for Alpine Sim for 10 years. Um, I mean, I certainly for me is I definitely see the climbing community is getting more diverse too. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering over these 10 years, do you have some numbers that could kind of back out this statement? Oh, I don't. I don't have any hard and fast numbers. It's sort of, I don't know, just a, a gut that I'm seeing like in our, in our client base. Um, but I don't have any hard and fast numbers. I think they they it would be pretty hard for us to pull the numbers because we don't ask for people's um, not people identify when they sign up for trips. And I don't know if that's something we'll ask for in the future. Yeah, I don't know. I just kind of have a sense, but no hard and fast numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but by what we've been seeing since that's the case yeah um, and i think especially um when i go to the northwest because my family still live in seattle so i still travel up there and since i over there the climbers are definitely even more diverse mm -hmm. say maybe in utah <laughs> <company>. yeah <laughs> so um great um let's see let me let me take take a look of my my notes and do you think that um, it's going to be this, it's going to be a long-term thing? Or you think that maybe eventually other guy service will catch on and then your mission will be switched to other direction? Oh, I don't know. Um, a couple of guide services, well, I guess just one, has already reached out um, asking about the program and like, um, what the budget is and how we thought of it and how it's working and sort of getting trying to glean some of our lessons which has been really cool to see that other guide services are also thinking about 
making their uh, being more inclusive and uh, thinking about diversity and equity in their businesses, which is very nice to see. I don't know. Well, I don't know how it'll evolve over time. I hope we'll keep doing, I really like the cohort model. It would be neat to have more guide service partners. So people have, um, so people in the program have more connections in the guiding industry. They're able to see how different companies operate. I think that could be pretty helpful. We're trying to set up something with the mountain guides um, in Jackson Hole. I have a couple of friends who guide over there and they're really interested in the program. Uh, so we're, we've been kind of talking about, oh, maybe people in our cohort could go over there to shadow some trips. That could be pretty neat. Um, so that's something we've been talking about. This year, we'll have a virtual component of the program to sort of round out our educational outcomes. We'll have one or two Zoom meetings every month. And it'll be a mix of sort of educational. So uh, one will be about unpacking the AMGA or the American Mountain Guides Association because it can be really confusing for people because there's different tracks and each one has different prerequisites. And yeah, I think that can be confusing. Um, so we'll do a whole Zoom about that. Also about American Avalanche education because there's the recreational track and the pro track and that can be confusing for people. I even get confused and I've been doing this for a long time. So we'll have things like that. And then we'll also be talking with climbers of color who are working in the industry as guides or professional climbers. Like we'll have Genevieve Walker, who's a professional climber for Mountain Hardware. She'll be doing a talk with our guide, with other people in the cohort about how she got into climbing, what it's like being a professional climber. So giving people an opportunity to see um yeah just people of color working in the industry and like their lessons so it seems like even though alpine is sponsored this program your your vision is more like this thing is kind of independent uh it's from that uh, even though definitely appreciate alpine sense sponsorship on this thing but you're more of like developing uh guides from underrepresented group and then hopefully this is gonna be there so you say talking about working with other guy services and all that so they can learn in a long run and how guy industry work yeah um i think it's yeah giving people a wider scope of the industry will just i think be really helpful for them as they think about how they want guiding to fit in their own lives and just yeah, giving the people in the program more resources. Um, and I do hope that, you know, some amount of people will choose to guide for Alpine Ascent. Um, selfishly, I, well, not selfishly, like I really, really enjoyed working with all the people, all the climbers in this cohort and, Knowing that I'll get to be coworkers with two of them coming up is really exciting to me. Um, and I think hopefully it'll be sort of like what happened with our women's programs. We started running women's programs um, 
about five, five years ago, 2017 or 2018, and making a really big push to recruit uh, female guide staff. Um, and we've been working like really hard at that for many, many years. And I think we're starting to see, like we have seen that really work for us. Um, we do get a lot of female applicants. Um, we have partnered with She Gems. We run their um, fundraising times in Washington and their um can you hear that my dog is being like <laughs> really weird in the background i'm so sorry um she's likes attention um hey shh. but oh yes so we've like done a really good job i think of recruiting retaining our female guide staff and i think at some point it gains a momentum of its own because you know guides in the industry, like talk to one another and our female guides are recommending Alphanessence to other people who are thinking about guiding. And so hopefully uh, that will be the case with this program as well. Once we get a lot more climbers of color um, joining us as guides, um, hopefully it'll start to gain some momentum in that way as well. Then do you think this BIPOC guide training program um, is more or less like modeling after the women program that you have oh it's it's pretty it's pretty different um okay. with our women's program we didn't have any like special trainings we just um what did we do i don't know we just like really really worked hard at recruiting and making sure we our staffing was equitable our pay was equitable um making yeah taking a really critical look at our programming and staffing to make sure that we had female guides leading and guiding all of our expeditions from Denali to Kilimanjaro to Bolivia to Mexico and just making sure making sure that we had um, female guides as our, on our senior guide team and just making sure that um, yeah that everything was set up that people felt supported at work. Uh, you mentioned that you realized the cohorts form uh, format of this BIPOC guide program and what can you elaborate on it? Why do you like it so much? Oh, I like it for a couple of reasons. I think um, a lot of people in this particular cohort this past year mentioned that it's hard to find near peer mentorship. So they're all learning things together, which I think can be really powerful and they're able to go uh, go out outside of the trainings and like practice the skills and sort of talk about what they've learned, incorporate it into their personal climbing. And the group became incredibly close over the month or the whole summer that they were together, like a big group of them, or some people went out to Red Rocks to go climbing. I, there's been talk of getting matching tattoos. It's just been really neat to see that community, um, Form over the course of the summer and now they're all really close friends um yeah and i think just have like being able to create a strong community is so important nice. in success and having the program be um successful great i mean obviously as a climate of color and the guide of color i really hope this is gonna getting stronger and stronger and then yeah. Like, yeah 
<laughs> that's very exciting. When I saw that thing, I was like, oh, I'm passing the training phase. Otherwise, I probably will apply. Um, <laughs> and um, so over the 10 years, I'm kind of curious, did you see any train? Like in the guy community and in the climbing community or in the climbing industry or in the guy industry, that's something that stand out for you. Oh, um, yeah, I think some of the things I've noticed it, more recently in the last couple of years, I mean, climate change is having a pretty big impact on our operations in a couple of different ways. Um, on Rainier in particular, it seems like our season is getting a little bit shorter. Uh, this past summer, we Uh, stopped guiding the Disappointment Cleaver about a month before we usually uh, ended guiding it just because the route was so broken up and it wasn't a beginner route anymore. So that's been really interesting to see. And in response, we've had to shift our programming a little bit. So like we're starting the season a little bit earlier this year. And um, at the end of the season, we have more courses and more programs that we can be more flexible with where we're operating. So like climate change, also fires. We do have a fire season in Washington now, which has been, which can be pretty impactful for our programming. Like we've had seasons where, you know, Boston Basin, we're not able to access because of fires or Glacier Peak. And we actually just developed a um, smoke um smoke protocols which we've never had before so thinking about like when the aqi is this what how are we adjusting our programs so climate change fire season i think i've seen personally a trend of maybe just because i've been at all for so long seeing more part-time guides or more guides who work at many different guiding companies and sort of piece together their guiding that way. Maybe that's always been the case, but it's just something I've noticed more generally. Um, and yeah, Th yeah, th those are the big things. I think just seeing guides more, more part-time and also like climate change and how that's impacted our operations. So you say when guys work part time, um, I usually I don't consider if they still guide for other companies, so they're still guiding guiding full time. That's my definition. But mm -hmm. would you, were you also saying about they do something else outside guiding? Yeah, um, and this could just be because I've been in Alpine for so long that I've seen guides like go through their guiding career, but. Recently, I've noticed um, a handful of guides that are going into firefighting seems to be pretty common. So they will become firefighters and then guide maybe one or two trips a month or two trips a month, or they'll switch around their schedules and they're able to guide a couple trips a month and also a Denali expedition. So a lot of guides going into firefighting, nursing, it's pretty common because they have a nice flexible schedule. And then some guides doing other things as well. Like um, 
one of our guides, Ben Jones, who does like our Everest, our Vincent expeditions. He's definitely full time, but he <laughs> yeah, I know uh, Jones. has. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's super nice, but oh, yeah. he also has a, a handyman business in Jackson Hole oh, when he's not okay. working. So like thinking about ways to diversify income streams, I think can be really key for people. A lot of people hang Christmas lights in the off season. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just it's been interesting seeing how guides make guiding work within the architecture of their life. Uh, Alpine Ascents in particular, since we do run so many overnight programs, I mean, that's all that we run. Um, it, I think it can be really hard for guides to balance wanting to guide a lot to earn money, but also wanting to be home to spend time with friends and family and not just be living in a tent most most of the year. And do you think that's because, um, well, in for guy service uh, based in Washington, the busiest time is summer. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the shoulder season, they either have to travel somewhere or then they have to find something else. Or you just think in overall, the, because in the guy community, we always talk about longevity, how we can mm-hmm. work and then no more. So like people will start working in 20 and retire at 60, say, but it seems yeah. like as a guide, it's very hard to do that. What do you think? Yeah, I think it is really hard to guide full time for that long, just because it is really hard on your body. Because um, it's like physical, you're away from home. Um, and I think, especially in Washington, well, like we're based in Seattle, things are just so expensive. Like housing's expensive, food's expensive. Just everything has gone up in price. Healthcare is really expensive. Um, and as a guide, as opposed to you know, working nine to five in an office, um, as a guide, you don't get things like paid time off. Or we at Alpine Sense, we do have um, guides that do have a simple. We do a simple IRA match. So Alpine Ascents will match 3% of their annual salary pre-tax. So people are able to save for retirement, um, lower their tax burden. Um, We do do uh, sick time now. And so we try and do things like that. But it's not, yeah, it's not the same as if you are working like like your standard nine to five in an office. Yeah, I guess uh, that's the thing people are always wondering, just like, um, especially newer guys is, uh, well, I still shop for my own health insurance, right? So Mm -hmm. then there's typically no benefit. It's kind of like you have to work to get paid. And so it's hard. I mean, so it's kind of nice to know that Alpine Center is a bigger company. You start to do a little matching IRA and potentially what, what else do you do? So besides yeah yeah okay so we do the sick pay um the simple ira match we do a continuing continuing education reimbursement so every 100 field days will uh give guides eleven hundred dollars to use well i mean guides can sign up for an amga course an avalanche level course or whatever and then we'll reimburse up to eleven hundred dollars so that helps. Um, I think 
I mean, it's not really a monetary benefit, but I think something that we do is since we're able to do so much advanced scheduling, so people have their schedule months and months and months and months in advance, they're able to do more life planning, um, make sure they have time for like weddings and vacations and that kind of thing. And we do have a very flexible mindset about guides working other places, as long as it's not a direct competitor, like Like to guiding other, Rainier, you mean. yeah, like guiding on Rainier, but um, if guides want to, in the winter, work for, I don't know, ski guide in Japan or just, we, we don't, we don't really care um, as long as, yeah, it's just not a direct competitor. So being really flexible with how guides are spending their time when they're
this year we had 24 applicants, so a little bit less than that last year, but this year in the application materials, I adjusted the prerequisites a little bit. I really emphasize that this program is probably best for people who are in the Pacific Northwest because um, we pair people up with a guide mentor and the guide mentor is here in Washington and just there's a lot of climbing here. So it's just, just a little bit easier to be local. Um, and then we increased the climbing um, prerequisites just a little bit. Um, my hope is that everyone who goes through the program would be able to guide at Alpine Ascents or a similar company at the end of it. So just making sure that people, that we're able to get people where they want to go. Um, and then this year was a little bit different. We had people from the 2023 cohort help uh, score applications. We had, I made a rubric, um, sort of a numerical, numeric rubric. For example, one of the questions was, would this program be impactful for this applicant? So zero, not impactful, all the way to three would be potentially life-changing for the applicant and their community. And we had, so I graded all the applications, people in the guide cohort grade applications, and we had another person as well. So each application was scored by three people. We took the average score, then we ranked the scores from one to the highest, or from lowest, from lowest to highest. And then we ended up interviewing the top 14 candidates. And the people from the 2023 program also helped me interview. So we had a lot of interviews that were me, someone from the 2023, which was cool because people were able to ask questions like, what'd you learn? What was your experience? Um, and I finished up applications on the 26th. And I hopefully will announce, well, I will, not hopefully, announce the cohort on January the 4th. Oh, okay. It's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Great. It's been really, it, the people who went through the program this past year, like really invested in the success of the program. And they've been really great about being involved. They helped, I'll, like, I'll often reach out to them and I'll say things like, oh, what do you think of these interview questions? Or what do, what do you think about the rubric or just like getting their input since they've actually been through the process? Great. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So, well, um, I think I'm, uh, well, we an hour and almost an hour and 20 minutes now. No. So, uh, I know that you probably have yesterday we said we do it in the morning so you can still have, can go, probably you're planning to go, out, go outside. Yes, we'll go outside. Um, I'm getting ready to go to Nepal very soon. So Ooh. I have to do um, some like, yeah, I have a big long list of things I have to do before I go. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that I catch you before you leave the country. Yeah, And thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was so nice chatting with you. It was such a fun conversation. Um, it was really fun to like think about the last 10 years. I don't do that very often. I'm always <laughs> very in the moment. So this is really and, cool. <laughs> yeah. And then I think talking with you, just like you said, uh, a lot of people just like, well, what, how, how do you become a guy? Is that intimidating? And um, I think people think the, assume the wrong thing to be intimidating. For me, it's, yeah. it's like, before I became a guy, I was like, I thought that was intimidating was not, but then <laughs> 
something that's harder than I imagined. So mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting that way. Yeah, great. Cool. So I'm not going to keep you for too long. So thank you again. So uh, hopefully I will do a follow on just to see, to learn how this program is doing for the 2020. Yeah, that'd be great. I think 2024 is going to be even better than 2023.